0: What is up, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. As a Southern woman who gets honked at by rednecks and souped-up trucks, my catchphrase is, your debt does not impress me. (laughs) My name is Thomas, and I guess I'm a Southern woman, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking today, man?
1: I'm even better than the first time you read that. I just really (laughs) like the sound of it. Uh, I'm drinking a river horse, Tripel horse. Um, Is from Belgium? Uh yeah yeah it's a Belgian style ale brewed with spices and it's got that uh hippopotamus on
0: it it's like my spirit animal so uh, very nice mm. I'm drinking uh what is it dihydrogen monoxide so it's this wonderful brewed you know from several places on earth sounds poisonous mine is from the Ankeny Water uh, Treatment Center I think mm. something like that but yeah it's pretty good it's it's coming up it's getting more popular. So, do they always add dihydrogen
1: monoxide to the drinking water?
0: (laughs) I think they they do. (laughs) It's a weird thing. I don't think they do that in New York, but... to get Or drinking water. Just (laughs) add dihydrogen monoxide to your drinking water. Interesting. (laughs) I wonder wonder if it says... I have this uh, square water bottle, and the bottom comes off, and I'm always paranoid that, like, it's going to get accidentally twisted off somehow. And then, like disaster will strike <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet so and it does make it pretty nice easy to clean hmm. so anyway Andrew should we just be like transparent about this and say like this is an episode we've recorded once before <laughs> actually actually I don't think that
1: we should be transparent and we definitely shouldn't say that
0: you don't want to do that
1: no I'm joking I'm keeping this in
2: Oh, okay yeah, cool. yeah no. Yeah. we're
1: we uh we recorded an awesome episode with this guy. His name is Matt, and we will introduce him officially in a second. And halfway through uh the interview, my computer like seized up and crashed. And then after like a ten minute break, we started again, and the whole first thirty minutes was gone. So. Oh yeah, that's mm. right.
0: And I loved this interview, so I'm I'm glad that we're doing it again because I wanted to get it out and. Recommends mostly to- because we have video and Matt's hair is fantastic <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm constantly just jealous as I look at it
2: um, Am I supposed to talk yet or am I supposed to like lurk in silence here?
0: <laughs> That's up to Get you back man. in your cage <laughs> yeah, you can talk. Um, but yeah, let's, I want to I want wanted to do this episode again And I just also wanted to say that Andrew went and bought a whole new computer because of that. Yes <laughs> <laughs> You're rocking like a completely brand new setup at this point and that was one of the catalysts for it, right?
1: Yeah, so I was getting some freeze points occasionally. It wasn't looking good. And then once, like, I mean, of all people, Matt, I'm sorry that we fucked your interview up. But uh,
0: it really, that was like the, the last straw. So I bought I it. It's okay. Me. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was at your house uh, in, what, no, January. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to fix our recording template. And I did, like, an hour's worth of work on it. And then your computer froze up. And uh, I had to just shut it off course i think you were running about 800 tabs in chrome at the time so yeah it may have been a little bit of a pepcac error i have a problem but anyway so let's do the official introduction so once again on the show we've got matt bodner who is uh you're a founder uh at, at uh fresh hospitality right or a partner i can't remember if you partner had. so you're a partner at a company called fresh hospitality which is an early stage investment firm and you guys invest in restaurants and all sorts of food related verticals in that area right Exactly. Awesome. And then Matt also runs a podcast called The Science of Success, which interviews people about rationality, decision making, all sorts of uh, topics where I would say like science intersects with business. Is that a good description of it?
2: Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, yeah, I mean, essentially, the podcast is about—I say—the intersection of psychology and decision making. But yeah, it's it's how science intersects with personal development. And instead of just looking at you know, kind of what does the latest guru say about how you can achieve more and and do what you want to do, it's more about what does the data actually say about the most effective ways to get happier, you know, negotiate better, uh, you know, achieve the goals that you want to achieve
0: yeah, and I absolutely love that you're taking that route to giving advice to people because a lot of people just don't look at the data. Hmm. I remember um I did a video a while ago on my channel about like whether you should change answers on your tests or not because there's what's the what's the advice they always give you? like always go with your gut, never change your first answer, right? So you're saying then, if you
1: circled a and you have a through D, like actually just change if you're not
0: sure, change it. Well, the the advice that was always given out by professors is like, always stick with your original answer, because Mm. if you change it, you're more likely to be wrong. Go with your gut. But if you look at the data, what actually happens is people who change answers they're unsure of on their tests, usually, not always, but usually more more than 50% are correct when they change it. Hmm. But the thing is, because of loss aversion, people tend to remember the times they changed it and then got it wrong because... That makes them feel like they had something and then lost it. Whereas if you didn't have it and gained it later on, there's no pain of loss. So you don't remember it. it kind of great like
2: example that kind of, of a uh, of a mental model, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I remember we talked all about that stuff. So, Matt, give us a bit of your background and like how you got started with with Fresh Hospitality and your podcast. And then let's jump into how we can tie in decision making and decision theory with personal finance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, you know, I'm a partner at a company called fresh hospitality and, and what, and I'm also the creator and host of science of success, which we talked a little bit about, but, um, fresh hospitality essentially is an investment company that invests across what we say, sort of the food value spectrum. So we invest in and actually operate in many cases, uh, businesses ranging from farms to production plants to, uh, restaurants, which is a huge component of our portfolio to commercial real estate, and then kind of, uh, related assets, kind of that service and support the rest of our portfolio. So we have investments in things like technology companies, marketing businesses, uh, accounting you know, support services companies that help empower our portfolio itself to kind of succeed and grow. And, you know, fundamentally what I say is sort of in the food vertical, but really I'm an investor, uh, at, at my core. And I think about the investing from sort of uh, two different lenses. The first lens is the lens of value discovery. And, you know, if you think about people like stock pickers, uh, many people that trade in largely public-facing securities, those are mostly doing kind of discovering value or searching for value. Uh, the other kind of side of the coin is what I call adding value, right? And that's those are more like private equity, maybe activist investors in some cases. And that's really what we focus on and what we do. So, I mean, to some degree in the, in the initial kind of stages of our investment sourcing and, and opportunities, we obviously look for the best opportunities. But the way that we tr- primarily realize value on in our investments is by actually getting involved in the businesses, getting very hands-on. In, in many cases, implementing systems, processes, bringing people in uh, and really trying to control the destiny of those businesses in a way that we can help them succeed and grow and become more successful.
0: So what does that actually look like in practice? I mean, so you guys make an investment in a restaurant. Are you guys literally making hiring decisions? Or are you bringing in consultants to make like do you take equity and get some sort of stake in the decision making process uh, as part of the investment?
2: Yeah, so I mean, we you know we typically take a majority stake in any of the businesses that we invest in, and I okay. uh, you know I'll give you a couple specific examples. I'll, I'll give you sort of a, our typical deal, and then I'll give you a couple examples of how that's played out. Um, you know, we typically within the restaurant vertical and kind of the restaurant bucket of our portfolio, we typically invest in what's called the fast casual segment. A lot of people have heard that term. Many people haven't. Basically, what it means is if, if you look at restaurants like Chipotle, Panera Bread. Um, those are kind of the flagship brands within fast casual, you know, the, the, the key distinguishing factors are there's kind of a counter service model. So you order at a counter, but it, there, mm-hmm. there's typically more of a focus on higher quality food, higher quality ingredients. So okay. we invest in that service sector. We primarily look to invest in er, very early stage restaurant concepts. So one to five units is kind of our sweet spot. Um, we'll find a brand. We'll take a majority position in that company and then we'll bring in system. We'll bring in all of our systems, all of our processes. We'll plug them into our accounting company. We'll plug them into our marketing agency, all of these different components so that we can give them access to a team that's almost like a corporate enterprise level team in the technology world, in the accounting world, in the marketing world, that lets them uh, really focus on the core piece of their business, which is making great food and focusing on their guests. And just to give you two really quick examples of that, um, or if you you had a question, we can go for that first.
1: Well, I was curious, how much money are you putting in to invest in like a one to three uh, restaurant business?
2: I mean it's not a huge check size like we're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars up to maybe like a million or two at most um, and I'll give you two specific examples. One is a company called I love juice bar. It's a juice concept we invested in about three years ago. Um, at the time they had just opened their second location. It was a, a husband and wife team that was kind of running the business. They had a tiger by the tail. Essentially they, you know, they had all these really exciting things going on. Tons of people kind of bombarding them wanting to grow it, but they didn't really understand or know what the right steps were to build the business and to grow it to the next level. Uh, we ended up partnering up with them. We invested in the company. Um, Took it, you know, we knew that we wanted to grow it really rapidly. So we decided to pursue a franchise driven growth strategy, which we don't do in every case, but for this particular business, we did, uh, we've scaled it up to where today in the last three years, we have, we now have 43 units and we have about another 15 in some form of development. That means at least it has an executed agreement and is possibly in some phase of construction or kind of pre-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and our goal is to get to 150 units within the next two or three years. So that, that business we're going wow. extremely aggressively, um,
1: Matt, there are probably hundreds or thousands of restaurant concepts that are in a a one to three unit phase uh, that that are, you know, selling food and doing well. Um, How do you narrow in on one? Like, like not just like these are the metrics that would, you know, decide buying in, but like, how do you uh, structure the decision?
2: I mean, you know, as I said, there's a couple pieces to the puzzle, but, but one of the fundamental things is at the end of the day, and this is going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but it doesn't really matter that much, which ones we pick because we're going to add so much value to the brand that that's going to be where most of the value accretion from our investment comes, right? Like we're not looking to discover the next diamond in the rough per se. Now, obviously we want to have the best starting conditions possible. Um, but that that's not the like biggest weighing factor necessarily in our decision-making. You know, we, we could kind of talk about the specific decision criteria I use to analyze and, and make particular restaurant investments. Uh and we can also kind of zoom out and talk about, you know, going back to what I said a second ago, one of the things that I really have spent a lot of time researching, thinking about and 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 noodling on is, is studying the greatest investors of of, of history and of our of our society and figuring out what what are the commonalities between them? What are kind of the things that make them tick? You know, I mean, I, I talked about the fact that I've studied Buffett and Munger in depth. I've also really studied people like Ray Dalio, who's the founder of a company called Bridgewater, which is the, one of the largest and most successful hedge funds ever. Right. I've, I've studied in depth John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, all of these. People like Bill Gates, like all these titans of industry, right? Billionaires, incredibly successful individuals, like so successful. It's it's beyond even kind of ordinary comprehension how much they've achieved and, and, uh, you know, financially, how much they've achieved, especially right. So what, what are the commonalities between those people? And, and I've, I've gone very, very deep down the rabbit hole. And that's actually sort of incidentally or accidentally why I ended up creating my podcast in the first place was I I became so fascinated with that study of how do we make better decisions, right? Because if you think about it, making better decisions is, is sort of the equivalent of like compound interest for your mind, right? It's, it's, it's something, if you can improve your ability to make decisions by 1% and then again, the next day you prove your ability to make decisions by 1%, that's a 1% improvement in every decision that you make sort of cascading forward through the rest of your life, right? And so what you're 1% better at thinking about your personal relationships, your personal finances, your job, right? Like a big purchase that you're making, you know, you're dealing with some kind of struggle, like whatever it is, if you, if you improve your brain and your mind and your ability to think better in an incremental way, it, it continues to build and build and build and build. You know, Einstein called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world, right? I mean, it's it's an incredible phenomenon. And I know you guys go in depth about that on, on, on the show. It's such an important piece of, of personal finance. And it's it's the the, the age old adage, is the earlier you invest, even as small amounts of money compounded can become huge sums of money, like staggering sums of money. It's the same thing for the ability to make better decisions, right? The more you invest in building a robust Kind of framework or understanding of reality that lets you understand what's actually happening in the world, how people behave, how financial markets behave. What's your framework? Yeah, so I mean, give me the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not that it's not that easy, right? I mean, I'm I'm talking about sort of the theoretical framework of of decision making itself. Now, I can tell you specifically what my decision criteria is for when I look at investments in restaurants or if you want to we can kind of go go down the rabbit hole of as Munger calls it worldly wisdom which is the idea of building a toolbox of as we touched on earlier in the conversation mental models and you know what those entail and Let, how let's to give that. like
1: two examples to like uh maybe one you have two job offers right and varying criteria or you know you're going to quit your job and you're going to start a business or you're going to I don't know like uh, how do you choose? I think like investing, you could have all these filters like, well, the company has to be like this and we only invest in fast casual and blah, blah, blah. And uh, then the decision becomes apparent. But what if um, it's, it's more? Um, I, I don't know how to describe. It. Uh, I see what I think you're you saying, need and filters I think you, for that yeah.
0: that kind of decision as yeah. well. I mean, I think the the thing is like when you have infinite choices, discipline and filters are the only thing that let you get to a productive answer.
2: That's mm-hmm. exactly the point, right? And and you 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 just sort of uh, said that in asking them the question, which is. When you filter things down and when you focus on selection and and really tightly defining what you're looking at, that's how you end up – That's that in and of itself is a mental model, right? It's the idea of selection. And it's the idea that you can sort of filter things out uh, at the front end of your decision-making funnel so that you can make a better decision at the end and kind of pre-qualifying yeah. what the most effective – Things you want to go after are, but I mean, we can we can go after some sort of specific instances within an ordinary person's life, as you know, like looking at thinking about new jobs or whatever. But the first question I would have to figure out is like, I need more information, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. I can't tell anybody listening whether they should take a job offer or not because I don't I don't know and I don't understand. Well, and that, of
1: course, but I you know, there's like one hand where it's like if you ask my mom, she'd be like, make a pro con list and then you know, I don't know, like weigh it out. Like, how how would you approach? Something like that, having no information, you know, uh
0: I think I'd start with my values. Like, I mean, would you agree that would be like the first kind of gauntlet your decision has to go through is like what are my personal values? And does would going one way match up with them versus the other way?
2: I think that's a valid approach. I mean, for me, if someone I mean, and this is a little bit tangentially kind of answering this, but if somebody asked me for advice in a weird way like we were to have an hour conversation Andrew, and you were asking me for advice about like anything in your life i would spend 50 minutes of that conversation asking you questions and distilling down exactly like what are the real sort of fundamental pieces of this that are you know what what are what's kind of anchoring your decision what are the most important decision factors for you like why are you thinking about comparing these alternatives what are the pros and cons of each of them all those things weigh in but to me i would spend the first I would spend eighty percent of my time on trying to understand what, like, really so what's going on with you. Do you do the
1: same thing when you're trying to make a decision? You just ask yourself like every question ever and try and like answer it, and you you almost like stumble into the right decision. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think about reality, and, and this applies to social interactions. This applies to business interactions. I think about reality in the sense of. Things can often seem very complicated and kind of foggy and and confusing. If you just distill it down to the building blocks that underpin whatever's happening and and you do this by asking like really simple and obvious questions, if you just do that in many, many cases, you can kind of get to the core pieces of it. But you have to be unafraid to ask sort of seemingly dumb and obvious questions. Like I, I relentlessly will drill down and just figure out like, you know, what are the real fundamental things going on? And then once I have those fundamental building blocks, then a lot of times the the right path becomes really, really obvious.
1: What, what are some of these obvious questions? And, and I feel like it's worth saying because people are like, uh, may, maybe it seems stupid to even say it, but.
0: Uh, I mean, I think you need context to know. Yeah, it's, it's impossible questions. to say, right? Like, I mean. Uh, but I think that's like, what I'm to saying. To distill that down to a lesson. Any situation you get into where you're making a decision or somebody is asking you to you know, make some kind of change in your life, I think there's a lot of times where there's like something that you might feel dumb for asking or you think should be obvious. So you just kind of like brush over it or like yes. the big thing that I always think of is like the moment like confusion comes up in your mind, most people just kind of like brush it off and just be like, oh, well, that that doesn't make sense, but I'm sure it will work out or I'm sure like what that person just said is is the truth. Um, so when you like, when you notice that you're confused, you have to kind of like latch onto that and take action on it be like, okay, I am confused and I'm going to take action until I am no longer confused instead of just
2: mm. going. Andrew, let's, that. let's actually, instead of just kind of batting around with, with hypotheticals, let's take a really specific example. What is a decision that you're thinking about in your life right now?
1: Oh shit. I, I didn't expect to be on the spot. in you know? the script. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I'm the interviewer. Um, you know, uh, if if I bring in partners into my business, you know, okay. and when we talk about, you know, 100% of a grape, 50% of a watermelon, but one, does it make sense at, and is like this stage too advanced already? Like, will I be the loser? Um, and two, like, uh, how do I pick the right person?
2: Okay, so why do you want to bring partners into your business?
1: I have some ideas that I think would like blow, like blow it up. Like I think that there are some opportunities, but I can't do it alone. It's just, it's too much work.
2: So you want some, you want someone to do additional work. That's the primary reason you want to bring in partners.
1: I'm, I'm really good at, um, development and coding and that end of things. And and perhaps someone on the business end who could bring in clients and, and, I don't want to give up my whole idea, but I guess I want, you know, a yin to my yang in the sense of someone who helped me contribute, have ideas. Uh but I, I just don't even know if it makes sense. Um how do I find that person?
2: So why would you you know, why do you think you need a partner to do that instead of an employee?
1: Uh I guess, one, I think that motivation comes from having a stake in the business. And I'm looking for uh, an equal because I'm not sure that I always have the right answers for all aspects of the business. And so if I'm the boss and I have to make the final call or they're doing things to appease me, I feel like the outcome will be different than if I have someone who is also pushing for the business to succeed, uh, but perhaps has different views than me. And, and would maybe compel me to, and, and maybe it's off base. Maybe you're right. Maybe I need an employee, but.
2: I don't know, right? Like why, why do you, like, why have you decided that a partner is the right thing to help you achieve this?
0: Or what basis do you have to go off? Like real basis, not just like some idea in your head that's not connected to anything is telling you that a partner will give you those things and an employee or a contractor won't.
1: I guess I, I don't really to be honest. I mean, Thomas, well, let me let me put it to you. Actually, let me, let me phrase it this to you, uh, Matt or Thomas. So I have this awesome idea, right? Uh, you guys both have successful businesses. You're both really smart guys. I'm going to try and compel you to work for me or I'm going to try and compel you to partner with me because I've sold you on the idea and you want to be a part of it. And my perspective is if I want a Thomas or a Matt to work with, I'm going to have to partner with them. They're not going to work for me.
0: But maybe what you maybe what you don't or maybe what you need is not a Thomas or a Matt because both Thomas and Matt are already hooked into businesses they care about a lot. In this I mean, example, to give you an example, but what if what if I've there was Mark, a dude, right? what if
1: there was a latent Thomas that didn't have a business, but I knew that he was a Thomas type person and he just needed something to
2: chase? I think, I mean, I think that's a valid point and, and that, that doesn't make sense to me. So what is like, what is the value you want to get out of this partner specifically? Do you want them to grow your like downloads, listenerships, you know, like app purchases? Like what is it?
1: Uh, So I'm building this tools platform that like, I think uh, for the first time in my life, I know what product market fit looks like, like people, like people are latching onto it. And I, I could see where it needs to be in two years and it's far more broader than it is now. Um, but like that idea, there's like two years of execution um between here and there, you know, and a shit ton of work, and I want someone to get there with. Or or maybe not maybe they're not a partner, but you know, getting there will be extremely challenging by myself. Look, um I, I, I totally agree with you guys, and I think that uh the, the side that you guys are coming out on makes more sense and perhaps bringing someone in is me like almost just like I don't want to do it like let's just make someone else do it like it, it's and but the, the thing is uh, whether or not I go one way or the other I could just constantly postpone the decision because it's a hard decision and there's a lot of work in doing it um, but not choosing is also making a decision I believe so to kind of like wrap this into analysis paralysis, where you are essentially not making a decision, decision, but deciding to continue on your path, which may not be correct, how do you avoid that? Because sometimes decisions are a pain in the ass. I totally
2: agree. I mean, you know, the root of the, the word decision is to cut off. Like that's what the, that's what the root word actually meant. And so When you make a decision, you're by definition cutting off all of your other alternatives. And I think the I mean, you have to cultivate the ability to be you kind of ruthless with yourself and hold yourself accountable to eventually making a decision, you know, set a deadline and say, I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with this in in two weeks or 10 days or set aside a day, set aside a half a day. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you can't do it during the week, set aside a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon and just say, I'm going to spend the next four hours. I'm not going to check my phone. I'm not going to check my email. And I'm going to go through and think about this and write about it and journal about it and figure out like, why am I making this decision? And what decision am I going to make? And, you know, that's, that's sort of uh, a piece of what's called a, it's a tool that a lot of people, especially in the investment world use, which is called a decision journal, which is basically if you have major decisions in your life, keeping a journal of them where you kind of write down each of the decision make, you know, each of the decision points, why you're making it, what your expected outcome is going to be kind of what your mental state is at that time. And you can even kind of weigh probabilities of what you think different outcomes could be from making that decision. The beauty of that is that over time, when you come back to that decision journal, you can look at it and say, uh, you know, wow, interesting. Like I continue to make the following mistake in my decisions. And it's, it's, you can see, cause it's crystallized in time that at that time I thought this was the right decision because of X, Y, and Z. Well, it turns out that, you know, Z was totally wrong. And if I look at like five or six other major decisions I made in the last two, like two or three years, I made the same Z mistake, like three different, three different times. Now it's time mm-hmm. to be like, Maybe I should stop thinking that because that's a flaw in my decision making.
0: Yeah, and it it might call for a total like value realignment. You know, like maybe you tend to think too short term or too fear based, and like you're not considering like what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, it's not that bad because in the moment everything seems like it's going to be really bad.
1: Hmm. I uh, I love that idea, and I, I think I'm going to do it, but. My, my one question is, what if you, you know, you're like, I'm going to do this and come a month's time, you have like one thing in it or you, you, you wind up not adding to it because, I don't know, you perceive none of your decisions as worthy of a decision journal. Like, uh, how, how do you get into this? Or like is like do, when I decide to wake up at eight today instead of nine because whatever is that worthy of decision? I mean channel? it's
2: it's fluid right? Like you get in what you put out. You don't need to log like every time you eat a sandwich. But I would say what like aim for roughly one decision a month, and and if you hit that, like you'll have some some meat on the bone, right? I mean. There's, you know, one of the things that that this is kind of another example of a mental model. Like if you study probability and mathematics, right? I mean, I'm a poker player and I'm a gambler, and I like, and that's, you know, being an investor, I like thinking about outcomes in sort of weighted probabilities. Like nothing in your life is certain, right? Like I can't guarantee you with certainty that picking a partner is going to make you happy or make you successful. I also can't tell you with certainty that not picking a partner is going to make you happy or successful. I can't tell you with certainty if a decision journal is going to transform your life or if it's going to be totally useless for you. But I think about everything in sort of weighted probabilities, right? So like, is there an 80% chance that this is going to work out? And, uh, you know, was there a 20% chance that it fails? And, you know, the, the corollary to that or the component that kind of makes that that's another piece of that that adds almost like a third dimension to the perception and and like the the way you think about probability is the idea of expected value which is thinking about what is the probability of an event and then what's the weighted outcome of that event so if there's a 10 percent chance that Uh, you know, something's going to happen, but if it happens, you know, it's, it's worth a million dollars to you. The expected value of that event is a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And I mean, we can, and that's a term from math and it's a term from like poker and gambling, and we can go deeper on that, but that's just an an example. And I think that, you know, there's no certainty in life, right? Like I could get struck by lightning in the next 10 seconds uh, and we'd lose this recording once again, probably, but, um, right. Like there's no way to know for sure if anything is actually ever going to work out.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Matt, you're very headstrong, and I could tell that uh, you enjoy making decisions. You actually like put yourself in a position so that you have to decide because you're constantly thrusting yourself forward. And uh, not that it is a bad thing, but I can imagine someone who is very different from you, who is going on a path either because they're uh, not, not deciding, so making a decision almost to stay on the same path, or avoiding situations that would require making decision like maybe they hate their job and they want to get a new job but then if they actually ace the interview they have to choose yeah. to, to take the new job so how, how would you or what would you say to that person to like get them into making decisions I mean that, that's it's, it's a
2: it's a massive can of worms right because if you think about the all of the emotional baggage around just the example that you gave right i mean one of the things i would recommend anybody listening to but especially someone who feels stuck or feels like they're in sort of a cycle of self-sabotage whether they recognize it as self-sabotage or not um would be to would be to examine your what are called limiting beliefs and and a lot of has been written about that a lot of people have talked about that and i've done a couple three, three or four episodes on my podcast about it too but like limiting beliefs are these kind of ideas that dwell in your subconscious and they're not true and they're not false. They're just sort of presuppositions that you have about the way that the world works. And if you have certain limiting beliefs, they can really, really inhibit and hinder the way that you think about the world, the way you make decisions because you think something is kind of always true or something is never going to work out for you or like you're never going to be able to be happy in your job or you're not good enough to get the next interview or you're always going to make a wrong decision so you can't decide to leave your job or stay your job or whatever it is and and doing some kind of introspection you know google the terms look for it like figure out and do some research and i can send you guys a couple links on it for the show notes too if, if listeners want to do a bunch of homework, but like we could talk for three hours just about limiting beliefs. Um, but I would say somebody who's sort of paralyzed by fear, dig into that, like ask yourself right again, it comes back to try to understand what's going on. Like try to get clarity. Like what is the fear? Why are you afraid of that? Why are you afraid of that? Just ask a recursive why? Like once you answer the question, then ask why that's the answer. Right. And then once you answer that question, then ask why again, and you'll get down to these these nuggets of, of your, of your psyche. And these like really core beliefs you hold at a subconscious level. And oftentimes they're formed when you're like three to three to six years old. I mean, these beliefs are formed in early childhood. You might've seen your parents fighting about money one time. And so you have this belief that money is evil or you, you know, you shouldn't try to acquire too much money because it'll just lead to unhappiness in your life. And so you, that cascades into you making poor financial decisions through your entire life and not really saving and saying things like, Oh, I don't really care about money because money doesn't rule my life. Well, the people whose lives are ruled by money more than anything are the people who think money doesn't rule their lives and don't spend the time and energy to invest Mm -hmm. in things like personal finance and just sort of you know wander through their personal finances and, and never have any money any savings those people's entire lives are governed by their inability to manage their own money and it's probably because of a limiting belief that probably started when they were like five years old and they had some kind of experience with money that told them oh I shouldn't care about money or I don't want to try to pursue money because it's evil or bad or whatever. And if you can blast those beliefs apart and realize that money is not good or evil, it's just a tool and that it's foolish to do anything other than try to optimize your life around, you know, take building passive income and developing your personal finances, it's, you know.
1: So Matt, I, I, could, I could say like, well, I'm a bad decision maker and, and here's all the proof that I've made terrible decisions because I'm just the worst. And I want to say that, that that is a limiting belief and, and it falls under that umbrella. But, you know, if there is proof that I have made bad decisions, how do you get out of that or or deconstruct why? You know, like, like everything is great in hindsight, right? I chose the wrong job two years ago. Um, and I can say that now because it's two years into the future. But if I were able to make the decision then, like how, how do you maybe structure that introspection or, or break that that. I think you your,
0: learn your more from your bad decisions. So, you, I mean, you, partially you can frame it that way. Like if you made a bad decision, that probably taught you a bunch of valuable lessons that you can apply to the next one.
1: So if you constantly make bad decisions, you're actually <laughs> Just, like the Einstein of now because you're so always learning. There's, like a couple, of- <laughs>
2: there's a couple pieces to this. One of them is is going back to Munger, right? Like one of the fundamental pieces of advice that, that Munger and Buffett give again and again is their entire investment strategy is not about being smarter than everybody else. It's just about being not stupid, right? That's that's the, the fundamental crux of their investment strategy is to try and understand the biggest possible mistakes you can make and just minimize as many of those as you can and then sort of stumble through the rest of them. So in terms of how do you, you know, one of the kind of facets of making better decisions is think about how you can, it's not just necessarily about being like this genius that shows up and is like, this is the decision. I know the answer, right? It's much more about like <laughs> thinking about what are the the most obvious mistakes that I could make? Let's just don't make those. Or even if you recognize, like even if there's 10 mistakes you can make, right? And like, you won't necessarily know all 10, but if you can identify and, and minimize three of those, you're way ahead of the game from most other people who are just going to blindly stumble through that and make You know, they have, you have, they have, you have a 30% better chance of being successful than they do, which is, which is massive, right? Because the the other piece of this is you don't have to make a ton of great decisions, right? The the other thing that Munger says is you only have to get rich once, right? You can fail a hundred times. If on the hundred and first time you're super successful and you become a millionaire or whatever, you know, that's it, right? You're you've, you've gotten wealthy after that. And so the, the whole idea that failure is bad or making bad decisions is bad Or that your identity is of someone who doesn't make good decisions also harkens back to the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. I don't know if you guys have read that or talked about that on here, but one of the most impactful books that I've ever read in my entire life um and she's an incredible research psychologist she's researched tens of thousands of individuals and and uncovered this distinction between what she calls the fixed mindset and the growth mindset and and essentially the the fixed mindset is the belief that i cannot change right that that my traits and qualities are are fixed so i'm a bad decision maker would be a perfect example of a fixed mindset belief when you live in a fixed mindset world your intelligence your abilities your strengths are all sort of permanent and stagnant and static and so everything you encounter in your life is either a confirmation or a challenge to your abilities. So if you do something and you're bad at it, Oh, I'm just bad at basketball, right? Like that's it. If you do something and you're great at it, you're like, Oh, I'm amazing at tennis. Like, yeah, I'm just a natural, right? Like those are, those are fixed mindset beliefs. Well, it's, it doesn't really sound that dangerous, but once you, once you've been kind of embraced or believe that, that that you can't change, suddenly the way you approach challenging situations transforms dramatically, right? If you're, if you think your intelligence and your abilities are fixed, your focus is on what do other people think about me? Do other people think I'm smart? Am I coming off as being super smart and super intelligent? I don't want to do that thing that's really challenging because I might fail and then I might either jeopardize my own identity as someone who's smart because I failed at this hard thing or other people might perceive me as being stupid because I failed at it. Right. The alternative that Dweck talks about is what she calls the growth mindset, which is which is a focus on learning and improving instead of a focus on proving and demonstrating how awesome you are, because in the growth mindset, you don't have. Fixed traits and characteristics, and if you're thinking about your mind, the science is firmly in the camp of the growth mindset. There's something called neuroplasticity, which is essentially the science of how you can remap and rework your entire brain. So I've got a, a quick story for you. If you think you're not good at making decisions, I'll tell you the story of this guy who. This is a listener who emailed me the other day. This is a guy named Davis Soret. He's I think he's like 19 or something. When he was 16, he was a uh, he was incredibly smart guy. Like you know, aced his SATs, like all this stuff. He was hit by a car and he was on a they have this this brain damage scale zero to 30 zero is physically dead three is brain dead 30 is like you know high intelligence or whatever after the accident he was a three on the scale right he was literally like basically brain dead he had to relearn how to speak he had to relearn how to how what his name was he had to learn his family all this stuff now he's like back and better than ever he's you know he's even smarter and more driven than he was before. And he's like, he's a fascinating individual. This guy sent me like this three page email about his whole life story, right? Which is incredibly inspiring, but it goes to show you like, you can remap your entire brain. Like the research mm-hmm. is in on that. It's not like, it's not a piece of conjecture, like Google yeah. research neuroplasticity. You can literally rebuild the structure and shape of your brain. So if you're bad have at you making read decisions,
0: about, have you heard about the nuns? It. No, I haven't. Uh, this, there was this like there was this nun study where they did autopsies on nuns that had died like late 80s, early 90s sometimes, and they found uh, degeneration and basically Alzheimer's. Yet yeah, they had been completely functional, had been working and, you know, right after their death, because since they stayed active and since they kept learning and everything, their brains basically just rewired around the decay and they didn't have a lose, loss of function. I think they talked wow. about it in the, the book Spark um, about exercise science. That's amazing. Was super That's really cool. cool. to me. But yeah, the neuroplasticity stuff is really cool. Uh, I went and bought that book like right now <laughs> after you mentioned it because I love nice. that <laughs> idea between like fixed mindset and growth mindset, and we talk about that a lot with like regards to money on this podcast. But I think it's it's integral in everything.
2: It was the single most transformational book I've ever read. Like, and I'm not exaggerating. it. And I actually stumbled across it. As I said, like this guy, Ray Dalio, who's one of the most successful hedge fund managers ever, uh, said that it was the most impactful book he'd ever read. And I was like, wow, like this super successful dude is like saying this book's really good. Like I should read it. And then I read it and like blew apart my perception of myself because I was incredibly fixed mindset before I read it.
0: So did you find this even more influential than that other book that you mentioned last time I recorded? Cause I remember there was, there was one that, I forget the name of it, but it's like that one that's kind of rare and you have to buy it in print.
2: Oh yeah. So that, no, that's one of my favorite books of all time. Also, that's the book Seeking Wisdom um, by Peter Bevelin. And that, that book is incredible. Talking about, you know, we've been we've been kind of bouncing around this concept of mental models all day, right? And we, we didn't necessarily sort of define kind of what they are, right? But a mental model is essentially just a thought construct that helps describe in some way reality and helps you kind of understand better what's going on. That book, and I, and I, Became obsessed with mental models when I started studying Munger, who's who again is Charlie or Charlie Munger's Warren Buffett's business partner, and he talks at length about this. And there's there's actually two books that I'd recommend if you want to go deep into kind of the rabbit hole of mental models. The first book is poor Charlie's almanac, which is about the first 30 or 40 pages is a biography of Charlie Munger. And then the next is a bunch of, uh, it kind of goes deep into what he calls the philosophy of worldly wisdom, which is a basically the notion that you should build this toolkit of mental models so that you can build this incredible framework to better understand reality. The second book is the book we talked about uh, last time, which is Seeking Wisdom. And, and that book expounds upon uh, what Munger talked about and goes much, much deeper into it. I mean, it's it's without a doubt the most information-dense book that I've ever read in my entire life. And it's a book that has had a huge impact on, on me and the way that I think. And I mean, I I would not recommend reading that first, to be totally honest. Like if you read Seeking Wisdom, you're, it's going to be like reading something that's written in Chinese, right? You got to read poor Charlie's (laughs) almanac to get the context for why Seeking Wisdom makes sense. But the book itself is essentially just a laundry list. It's about 300 page list of mental models. And then it'll have like a two page description of each model and like give examples of what, like what they are and how they function. So like the first 70 or so pages, which you can actually, there's a YouTube video that, that I'll send you guys for the show notes called the psychology of human misjudgment, which goes through 20. It's actually a speech by Charlie Munger. It goes through 27 mental models just from psychology and explains each one of them gives kind of an example of how they function and talks about how, you know, people can go wrong if they don't understand that mental model. And those would be things like confirmation bias, anchoring, social proof, you know, all of likability bias, like all these different biases. And if you've, the two other books that they go deep into psychology um, and, and are also really good for understanding some of the core mental models from that field are predictably irrational by Dan Ariely and uh, influenced by Robert Cialdini. And then, and then, so I would, if you want to kind of, if psychology is your jam and you want to go deep in that, check out both of those books. And then yeah. the, the kind of the master course in that is thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. That, Like Mm -hmm. the, the two books that I think could transform your thinking more than any, any other books that I've read probably in the last 10 years would transform your thinking. Now I think mindset can transform your life, but these two books transform the way you view the world would be seeking wisdom and thinking fast and slow, but like, they're not fun books to read. Like, it's like, it's like read it's like slogging through the heart, like a hard textbook, right? Yeah. But like if the more you internalize those, those mental models and build a framework within your own mind of of all of these different puzzle pieces, right? That sort of fit in slowly together, the more coherent and clear a picture of reality you start to build. And the more you can bring to bear in any situation in your life where you feel a lack of clarity, where you don't understand what's happening, where you're trying to make a decision, those tools can be incredibly impactful in helping you sort of move towards that.
0: The one thing- You both are (laughs)
1: voracious readers. Uh, like I, like I'm super jealous and I need to, uh, like get like on board, but so you're, you're explaining these books and I know Thomas that you read books that are as thick and rough to get through that. That's that basically is like, ah, I guess I'm not getting that book because I'm not going to do it. Um, or is there like some approach that you guys use to like one, get through it and retain the knowledge? Like, do you guys no, sit there with like a you notebook? You know what my approach is notes? now?
0: like audiobooks mm. and I do I got, you've got like what an hour long commute every day or something like that like because I do yeah. I do read and when I'm like really good on my daily habits and schedule I'll go and I'll like read on my iPad for a good half an hour and that's how I'm going through uh, influence right now but I'm more often in my car or on a run or just like doing some manual task in my house so I just put an audiobook on and like I find that I retain the information just as well Especially if I go like maybe write a little summary, write some notes later. I would say more
2: than 50% of the books I read are audio books. There's certain books and I would actually recommend not doing either seeking wisdom or thinking fast and slow on audio because those are the kind of books where I will take like a pen and like, I mean, if you, if I, if I were to go and show you guys my copy of seeking wisdom, it's completely coded in notes. Like there's notes in the margin underlines every page. I mean, I like, I have like so much, I probably wrote like, if you were to take all the notes, it'd be like. 10 pages of handwritten notes you know what I mean that are just in the margins of that book um yeah. it's, it's
1: so do you approach it like okay seeking wisdom I've heard amazing things I need to do this and uh this month I'm just going to truck through and uh like if I could achieve it this month dude it took that, me like six
2: months to read seeking wisdom <laughs> it took me like three or four months to read Thinking Fast and Slow. Wow. And I mean, I was reading other books at the time too, but like I was set aside like, you know, similar, like I would set aside like 30 minutes and I would read like six pages of it and and just like try to digest it. And there's there's still chapters in that book where I read it and I'm like, like I, I don't really even like understand what this is talking about. Like I need to read this like five
0: more times and mm-hmm. and really go deep on it. So one thing that's been on my mind since we're talking about decision-making that I wanted to say is like, I think that decision making and conflict are intrinsically linked, uh, and that people tend to avoid both of them. But I think you can practice being more comfortable putting yourself in a situation where there is conflict or where there is a decision or there is a potential for failure. And the more you do it, the more you become comfortable with it. You, be, you become comfortable with the idea that you might fail and that it will probably be okay if you do. And like just doing things like playing chess with a human being or like accepting, uh, like playing a sport or accepting, playing like a game with somebody or, you know, that just like doing that or playing a video game on hard mode instead of easy mode, like making that choice to basically put yourself in front of the potential to fail. I think that kind of just trains your brain to be comfortable with doing that when it actually matters more. Being comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And there's being comfortable with like making that decision, knowing that, yes, there is a potential that I'll fail. But like I need to make that decision.
2: Have you guys that that, that reminds me one of uh, the book Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, which he's mm. super, super sharp guy, like world champion, uh, martial artist and also like national chess champion, like 10 different times. Like he's total badass. Um, he's book Art of Learning. He talks a ton about the idea of embracing and sort of moving towards discomfort. Um, One of the simplest ways to implement that in your life is to... Have you guys ever heard of rejection therapy?
0: No. Is that where you like... Go up to a girl, like 10 girls in a bar and ask them all out just, just to get the rejections and like to, yeah, basically like it's
2: the, like the, the easiest way to think about it. And if you Google, like you can find like rejection challenges and like 30 day rejection therapy regimens, but like you don't have to necessarily be like trying to pick up women, like you're married or whatever you can rejection therapy. The core principle is like, you should try to get rejected at least once a day and just Mm -hmm. keep pushing the envelope until you can get rejected at something. So like go into Starbucks and just be like, Hey, can I get like 50% off of this cup of coffee? Right. And like, it sounds really simple, but like very few people are going to listen to that and actually go do it. Because once you stand at the register, it's kind of like, uh, like, okay, thanks. Like I'll just take my coffee. Right. (laughs) Like it's actually really hard to like push out of that and like get uncomfortable and try to have someone reject you every day for 30 days. Like if you do that, it's You can do it without changing anything in your routine, right? Like just find a way to get rejected every day for the next 30 days. It will, it will toughen you up and help you embrace discomfort for sure.
0: The people I know who are best at that are the ones who had like those jobs in college where you're a door to door knife salesman or you're like selling books. Oh yeah. Sales. Like that that is, you just like get it. It becomes ingrained in your head. Sales will definitely train you on that. Yeah. Rejection. Uh, I had a friend who he did something like that. He just, it was like a selfie challenge. Just like try to get a selfie with 300 people over the course of a month or so, like just on the street.
2: That's such a good challenge, dude. I want to do that. That sounds amazing. Just take a selfie with strangers. Be like, Hey, can I take a selfie with you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like, if they're going to say no, like what, what's the cost? Not much. You look a little silly, but you know, yeah, that's awesome. You don't look like an asshole or anything, but yeah. So I mean, we've done a ton of stuff in this episode. Um, I recommended a ton of books. Like, if, if you were going to recommend one for people who have never read any of this stuff to start with,
2: but I tell you, got to you got to start with Mindset by Carol Dweck. Okay, that's the number one recommendation.
1: Cool. We'll throw all these books I, in the show notes because, like, yeah. they're they're buzzing by so fast. Like, <laughs> I I am in front of a computer. I couldn't even
0: have written them down. Uh, mm-hmm. So so we'll get it all there. Um, Damn. Yeah, I just bought Mindset, so I may listen to that in the car on the way to Denver. What do you use? It's a great to, read. What do you use to listen? Do you use like Apple, iTunes, something, Audible? I use what? Audible. Audible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've been. I've had sponsored Audible since, like, by Audible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I uh, I have had Audible as a sponsor on my YouTube channel, and we may have had them once on the show, mm. but I mean, I've been using them since I don't know, like I was 16 years old, so.
2: Yeah, I've been using it I will chill time. for them.
0: <laughs> Unapologetically, <laughs> I like their stuff. <clears throat> and it was I mean, I, I bought that book in like one click and now I'm going to go listen to it. Nice. And I just got the Steve Jobs one too. So, I'm
2: pretty That's a great one. That. I did the audiobook on that a couple years ago. Did you? I cried at the end. Yeah, it's really good.
0: Okay. I'm just about done with the Amazon one, so I'm just going to like finish that and then truck right into Steve Jobs. You know, it's weird cuz like for a long time, I always had this weird avoidance of studying like the most famous or most successful people in the field. Maybe it was like a limiting belief thing like, oh, I should only look at people who are like one level above me because there's nothing I could possibly be able to implement that, you know, a super rich and famous person did. But I've become more comfortable with the idea of like I can do the same things that Steve Jobs did or Jeff Bezos did. They
1: were normal and it just, it people. It seems weird
0: that I – yeah, I know. I, it seems weird that I used to like look up to them, and be like, "Those are gods." Whatever they did, not applicable to me.
2: I, I always try to study in those kind of biographies. Like the, the part that I'm most interested in is like, what is, where is the inflection point, right? Like, where is the point where they departed from the path of being like an average Joe and got on this trajectory of being just monstrously successful, right? And like, how can I, how can I study that that part of their life at that moment and get some sort of key that can help me do the same thing
0: like the catalyst moments and then you can kind of work back from there yeah yeah like the thing i'm taking away most from the amazon book is just like how ridiculously set on long-term thinking bezos is to like the craziest degree to where i mean half of his companies constantly tell him like don't do this you're gonna lose money and then he does but then it works out in the end because he just sees like so much longer term than anyone else
2: dude he's a badass
0: Yeah, it's ridiculous. I actually haven't read
2: everything store. I just added it to my reading list when you mentioned it earlier. So
0: yeah, yeah, it's good so far. I've got like an hour left in it. Nice. But anyway, before we make this podcast an extra hour, uh, we should probably (laughs) wrap up. So Matt, if people want to connect with you, listen to your stuff, uh, send you an email. Where should they go?
2: so the easiest thing to get started and I actually put something together for everybody listening to this, um, I know we kind of bounce around a ton of different ideas about decision making and mental models and all these books and everything. Um, I created basically a free guide that you can download that's called Four Steps to Making Better Decisions. And uh, anybody listening can get it totally for free. And it's at scienceofsuccess.co. That's scienceofsuccess.co slash better. So just go there. You can get the guide. Um, And uh, you can also, if you're on that site, you can find the show and listen to it. It's called the science of success on iTunes. We go deep into a lot of the stuff we talked about today. Mindset limiting beliefs. Um, We haven't aired it yet, but we've got an upcoming interview actually with Carol Dweck, who's the author of mindset. And like, I'm super psyched about that one. Um, But yeah, just come check it out.
0: Cool. Well, we will have all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, otherwise, if you guys have additional questions that you want to ask us, whether it be about decision making or any money related topic, listen, money at gmail.com is our email address. And lastly, you can check out our toolbox full of resources and our personal bookshelf with all of our book recommendations, which will probably be expanding after this episode over at listofmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. So that is all we've got for you guys this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Later, guys. Later, man.